It says in Philippians 2, verse 9, Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I don't know what you're up against today. I don't know what you're dealing with today. But I just want to tell you, take it all and put it in a box. And God is bigger than that box. He is bigger than whatever you're facing. Father in heaven, we come to you today in the name of Jesus. Who is at your right hand. And who is ever interceding for us. one who loves us, the one who died for us, the one who cares for us. And we cast our cares upon you for you care for us. And we look and long for that day when we'll be in your very presence world without end forever and ever. Until that time, Lord, may we walk with you, live with you, Find the grace that we need for our days to love, to forgive, to hope, to dream, to be all that you have for us to be here below. Again, be with all those who are being impacted right now by Irma. Minister to them. I think of the Peck family and the Patton family in Orlando who are right in the middle of Florida. Be with them, I pray. In Jesus' name. If you have a Bible with you today, I invite you to turn to Psalm 27, Psalm 27. Uh, while you're turning to that, and I meant to bring one with me, today, I, if I'm correct, is, uh, I think is Grandparenting Day. Anyway, I thought it was Grandparenting I'm pretty sure it's Grandparenting Day. Anyway, whether it is or not, there's uh, some, some booklets back on the Welcome Center table. If you're a grandparent today, it's a... Uh, uh, a new ministry called uh, uh, Grandparenting Matters. Uh, it's being led by Ken Canfield, who had the fathering initiative out of, out of Manhattan, I think, oh, probably 20 years ago. Now he's, I guess this is his season of life, and he has a grandparenting uh, ministry to grandparents. And there's a, a nice, uh, colorful booklet back there for you. If you're a grandparent, I encourage you to pick one up. Some good ideas about grandparenting. Psalm 27. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evil men advance against me to devour my flesh, when my enemies and my foes attack me, they will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. The war break out against me. Even then will I be confident. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to seek him in his temple. For then the day of trouble, he will keep me safe in his dwelling. He will hide me in the shelter of his tabernacle and set me high upon a rock. Then my name will be exalted, excuse me, his, my head will be exalted above the enemies who surround me. At his tabernacle will I sacrifice with shouts of joy. I will sing and make music to the Lord. 
Hear my voice when I call, O Lord, be merciful to me and answer me. My heart says to you, seek his face. Your face, Lord, I will seek. Do not hide your face from me. Do not turn your servant away in anger. You have been my helper. Do not reject me or forsake me, O God, my Savior. Though my father and mother forsake me, the Lord will receive me. Teach me your way, O Lord. Lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. Do not turn me over to the desire of my foes for false witnesses. Rise up against me, breathing out violence. I am still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of God abides now and forever. May he bless the reading of it today. Well, we're right smack in the middle of our series, The Greatest Story. The Greatest Story, and if you haven't picked up one of the, the booklets, there should be some on the back table that have a chart of what we're trying to do. And, and the chart kind of looks like this to where we are so far. We started Genesis 1 through 11 was the prologue. Uh, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, 12 sons of Jacob, whose name was changed to Israel, hence the nation of Israel. Joseph went down to Egypt, people multiplied, they got a leader, they got a culture, they got a land. Um, the time of the judges, the prophet, and then God's plan with the, wanted to speak through the king. Saul didn't receive that well, but it was different under David and Solomon. And that's where we got to last week. And if you remember, I had a different drawing kind of for that that looked like this, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, the Twelve. And then the development of all these things that it takes to fulfill the promise that was made to Abraham back in Genesis 12 that God was going to make them a mighty nation. And finally, this is kind of the apex of the Old Testament story under Solomon when it's talking about this in, in 1 Kings 10. There's, there's wealth beyond your imagination. There's wisdom. There's peace in the land. All 12 tribes are, are working there. He built the temple, and it says the glory of God came and lived right there in the temple. I mean, it doesn't get any better. Than, well, it's going to get better than this. One day, remember, I told you after this is Act 1, we're going to have an Act 2 and Act 3. At the end of Act 3, there's going to be time when the Bible says the whole world, the whole world will be like that. It'll be full of the glory of God. And that's where God is going. And that's where the story is going. We're just not going to get there today. So we're going to pause with this because I, I'm taking kind of a pause from this. and We're not really moving on the, on the timeline anymore today. And I'm going to talk about um, a, an important part of Scripture. It's the poetic books. And there, there are five of these in the Bible. Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes, and Song of Solomon. These are, we're kind of on a pause on the journey. Uh, all of these, except for Job, took place during the time of David and Solomon. And so that's why I'm going to talk about these poetic books at this point in time. Now, again, looking at what's happening and trying to maybe frame it in a little bit different way. If you remember back in Genesis 12, God told Abraham, I will make you a great nation. Every, everyone will, you know... The, those who bless you will be blessed. Those who curse you will be cursed. You will be a mighty people beyond the sand on the shore. And God kept saying to him, I will 
I will, I will. God kept making a promise to Abraham. Now, now think with me for a minute. What do we call it when God says he's going to do something? And when he says he's going to do something apart from us and apart from our works. What, what do we call it when that happens? What's that word in the Bible? Do you remember? It's, it's grace. So Genesis chapter 12 is the, in a real sense, is the first expression, I think, of grace that we see that threads through the whole Bible. And, and so when you get to chapter 15 and you see that Abraham believed God and it was counted to him for righteousness, we see that Abraham became a child of God by faith in what God was going to do. He was saved by faith, and people in the Old Testament were saved by faith, just like we are today, by faith in what God has promised and what God is going to do. Then if you remember, we get to Mount Sinai in Genesis chapter 20, and we get to the Ten Commandments, and you remember what it says there? God doesn't say, I will. He says what? He says, you must. You will. You have to. Now, so when, when God says you must do something, what do we call that? We call that the law. That's works. That's obedience. And so what we see in this great storyline is a God who works apart from man, but also, okay, also asks us to be obedient and to plug into the plan, and he weaves together this grace and a law in a way that only he can. And there's progress of this because we're going to see it when we get to the New Testament. We get to John 1 and we read about Jesus. It says Jesus is full of grace and truth. Grace and truth. So again, this is a high point in this story. So today we're talking about these books of poetry. So some of us may even say who are very uh, linear, literate thinkers in, in terms of of, of what God is doing and, and very concrete. We think, why do we need poetry? I don't know about you. I, I was the, Literature and poetry <clears throat> was not my favorite part of school. I mean, because they kept wanting me to figure out stuff. You know, these teachers want you to figure out what this guy's trying to say in the poem, and I'm like, <laughs> you know, trying, trying to get it. And uh, I, that was not ever my, my forte. I think we need, we need poetry, and we need a different type of literature than we've seen because of something that needs to happen, and we need to see in a new dimension. Um, one thing I talk about a lot is keeping God in the equation. How, how do we keep God in the equation? Whatever it is you're going through in life, whatever you're dealing with, whether it's in your marriage or it's a health issue or whatever, how do we keep God in the storyline? How do we keep God in the equation? And I think, in a very real sense, what we have here in the poetic books is God's way of telling us and modeling for us how to keep him in the very real fabric of life. What do his glorious truths look like when they intersect with very real people? How do people keep God in the equation. How do they live out their faith? Now we're going to see progresses. In the New Testament, there's a verse on this in Philippians 2. 
Therefore, my beloved friends, if you always obey not only in my presence, but now much more in my absence, continue to work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and to act in order to fulfill his good purpose. So you see this is all woven together. The truth that we know about God, the things that are revealed to us about God, and our real lives are woven together for us to work it out. And when you get to the book of Job and Psalms and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and Song of Solomon, all that is working it out. These, these books are very, very, very personal. There's, a, there's an intimacy in these books that you don't get elsewhere in the Bible. And so I'm going to spend two weeks on it. I'm going to talk about Job and Psalms today, and then the next week the other three books. Again, we've been reading about events, and we've been reading about commands, and we've been seeing some of this grace and law and how it, how it uh, connects with um, human obedience and disobedience. But in these books of poetry, we're, we're going to get personal. We're going to get into the emotions and the desires of the individuals that come out and their attitudes and their, their, their honesty. Um, very deep, personal stuff. It gets down to what the Bible calls the heart of a person. And so we're going to see a very... Um, first-person kind of experience, an I, me, my kind of experience through these themes. And hopefully, again, these words are given to us to teach us and for us to grow by. Let's begin with the book of Job. In the book of Job, the theme of Job is connecting human suffering and the sovereignty of God. And kind of the big questions that come out of the book of Job is, why do good people suffer? And maybe secondary or corollary to that, does human suffering disprove God's care and justice in this world? Now, the key verse in the book of Job is Job 121. Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. That's profound. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. Great verse. Great verse. Now, if you don't know the story of Job, let me just give you the Reader's Digest condensed version. Job was, Job was a righteous man, a good man, a prosperous man. He's very wealthy. He had a, had a, a full family, a lot of kids, and, and uh, was a healthy person and all this. <clears throat> and the Bible tells us that Satan came to God and said to him, basically, the only reason that Job loves you is because you bribe him with blessings. You take away the blessings, Job will forget you. And God said, okay, I don't, that's not true, but I will let you test him. And Job lost everything. He lost his children. He lost his wealth, and he lost his health. And so anytime you think you're having a really bad day, pick up your Bible, go to Job 1 and 2, read those two chapters, and you'll gain a new perspective. 
Because I don't know anybody that had all of that following them at least at one time. Even if we'd gone through some of those pieces, God's in his grace has spaced it out for us. And all this was like a house of cards. It just all came tumbling in on Job. And so the bulk of the book is him wrestling with that and sitting with his friends. If you've read through it, chapter 3 is really powerful. Job says, I, you know, I wish, I wish I had never been born. I wish I had never been conceived. I would never been born. I wish I had been stillborn. I wish I had never existed. I mean, it's just, he just goes on and on. Uh, and so it, it, it is a, it is very, it's very real and it's very raw. It's very human. And in the book of Job, you get despair. Like I said, wishing that he had never been born. You get perseverance. He says things like, when he has tested me, I will come forth as gold. In the midst of the trial, he, he, he has enough perspective to see out. And there's faith in it all. Again, the Lord gives, the Lord takes away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. One writer has described Job as the ABCs of spiritual growth. ABCs. Adversity builds character. Adversity builds character. Um, you know, and so, and some of you are right there. Some of you are in the midst of adversity. You're suffering physically or emotionally or whatever. And it's a challenge for you right now to believe that God is still there and that God has not changed. So, what happens? How does this all play out? Well, if you haven't read the book at the end... The interesting thing is that God never really answers Job's questions. He just gives him a list of all the powerful things that he has done alone without God's help. And he reminds Job that he is God and he answers to no one. And that God is sovereign. Who are we to question God. And we don't like that because what that means for us, what that means for us are a couple words that begin with the word S. One is submission. The other one is surrender. Nobody likes to submit and nobody likes to surrender. I'm just saying it because that's the way we're made. In the book, this is the call upon him. Let me read a little bit from the end of the book, Job 42, if you have your Bible. Job 42. This is my favorite part of the book of Job. Job 42. Then Job replied to the Lord, I, I know that you can do all things. No plan of yours can be thwarted. You asked, who is this that obscures my counsel without knowledge? Surely... I spoke of things I did not understand, things too wonderful for me to know. You said, listen now and I will speak. I will question you and you shall answer me. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes have seen you. Therefore, I despise myself and repent in dust and ashes. My favorite verse 
from Job is verse 5. My ears had heard of you, but now my eyes see you. There, there is something about the, the deeper spiritual life that only comes through adversity. That's, that's the only way it happens. Um, Peter Kraft said it this way, and I think he's spot on. The closeness to God, the similarity to God, the conformity to God, not just the feeling of being close to God, the real closeness to God, the God-likeness of soul emerges from suffering with remarkable efficiency. So maybe it's like this. There's Job, and how does God deal with the heart of the matter, which is all the books of poetry, they deal with the heart. He deals with the heart of the matter through suffering, which brings him to grasp and embrace and surrender and submit to the sovereignty of God. Job, powerful book. Let's talk about Psalms a little bit. And I want to I do a survey this morning. And so we have a slide for the survey, I think, this morning. If you would go to that, um, what's your favorite psalm? You want to respond to that? I'm, I'm going to tell you later on, we're going to do a survey of 12th Avenue Baptist Church right now and see what your favorite psalm is. So you can go ahead and be doing that while I'm talking to you about there's 150 psalms preserved for us. It's the longest book in the Bible. It's probably the favorite book of the Bible for most of us. It was written over a thousand years, if you believe that Moses wrote Psalm 90, which most people do. The majority of them, well, almost the majority, were written by, well, the majority of the Psalms were written by King David, and almost a majority of all the Psalms, he wrote 73 of them. They were written to be sung and accompanied by instruments, so we can accurately refer to them as hymns or songs. And if there's one word that we would use to describe the book of the Psalms, it would be worship. It's all about our personal relationship to God of bringing us to a place of humble devotion, service, and praise to Him. So, again, remember all these books of poetry is bringing God into the personal experience. We see this in Job in his pain and suffering and wishing that he had never had existed. We're going to see this in the Psalms. In fact, I have a book on my shelf that's entitled uh, Praise and Lament in the Psalms because there's praise and there's lament. Walter Brueggemann described the pattern that we see over and over in the book of Psalms in three ways as, as orientation, disorientation, and new orientation. Orientation, the psalm will start out, and we see this in Psalm 27 that I read today. All is well, life is good, God is in control, good is rewarded, evil is punished, everything is making sense. Then there's a time of disorientation, a, a crisis time, a downward spiral into a dark hole. It's a place of stress. Now, what causes this? Well, the, there's you know, the whole grocery list. Tragedy and illness and sin and change and death and relational difficulties and our, emotionals, our emotions are, are in an upheaval. And there's anger and there's self-pity and there's hopelessness and there's doubts and fears. And then, then, 
And we see this time and again in the Psalms. There's a reorientation where you come out of this time of disruption and God either removes us from the pit or he meets us there and something happens on the inside of us and brings us to a new and better place. I love the Psalms. The Psalms, the Psalms are kind of like going to a devout Christian's house and, and, and sneaking in some morning when you see the lamp on at their, their place where they have their devotions and you come in and you listen to their honest prayers to God. That's what the Psalms are. They're like listening in to the honest, heartfelt, personal encounter with God. Now, Psalm 27 fits this pattern I'm talking about. There's this orientation where he begins with talking about how great God is. And he says, God is our light, and he's our salvation, and he's our stronghold. And, and, and there's a deep sense of certainty and calm and purpose. And he brags on God. And we usually frown at bragging. We don't like it when people brag, you know. But bragging on God is a good thing. I mean, it's a faith builder. It's a courage bringer. It's, you know, it's like in Psalm 27, it says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? In fact, help me with this. Would you read this aloud with me? Let's read that together. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Now, there's something powerful in just saying that aloud. Just saying that aloud. Sometimes it's really healthy to read some of this aloud in, in our devotions because there's a power in, in speaking it aloud. Now, there's this idea of bragging on God. Paul, in the New Testament, Paul bragged on God too. Romans 8, 31. What shall we say to this? If God is for us, who can be against us? Philippians 4, 13. This sounds like bragging. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. We brag on God. So we get to verse 4, which is, uh, one writer describes it as the most single-minded purpose, statement of purpose in the Old Testament. One thing I ask of the Lord, this is what I seek, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze on the beauty of the Lord and to seek Him in His temple. You see, David's talking about having a single purpose, a single heart. A person that's going to achieve anything is single-purposed. If you're going to run a marathon, you've got to give yourself to pounding the pavement regularly. If you're going to make Apple computers sing Steve, Steve, um, what was his name? Steve Jobs. Steve Jobs gave himself to that. I'll have him miss that. Gave himself to that. He threw himself into that totally. If you're Edison and you're going to invent the light bulb, you try well, how many things he tried? A thousand things where he found something. But he had a purpose. And he's, David's saying here, he's my one purpose. God is my one purpose. And you know, this is really important because in a few moments from now, we're all going to be dead. How morbid is that? But that's reality. A few moments from now, we'll, we'll all be gone. This life flies by. It's just a vapor. That's why you get it when... Paul said in Philippians 1, for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And that's kind of what we're getting here. Is we should, our, our, this should be our consuming passion that our life is to be lived in God. And when I die, it just will be better. 
But something happens in this, and there's a disorientation, and I don't know what's going on because these are very personal things. But what do we hear David saying? He's saying, do not hide from me. Do not turn your servant away. Do not reject me or forsake me. Do not turn me over to my foes. Something has happened. And you're reading this and you're thinking, is this the same person who just wrote the first three verses of this? And I say, yes, yes, it is. Because David is a human being like you and like me. And the emotions of victory and success and, you know, those things can change. And they do. And we run into some crisis and we run into something that's really hard and we run into something that's very painful. Somebody hurts us and we need to forgive them and somebody, you know, leaves us out and we feel left out. And someone that we love dies. Someone that we love gets a health report that's not good. And these things... These things create um, emotional and even sometimes spiritual vertigo. We can't try to get our minds around it. It's like if you, you've ever you ever gone to the to the to the beach, the ocean, especially the Atlantic, which is pretty vicious, and you go and the waves are pretty big, and you get out there and you go a little farther, a little farther, and finally there's a big wave comes in and it just knocks you off your feet. And it, and it takes a while for you to get your feet back up under you again. And that's what happens here. We run into these things and these rogue waves hit us and knock us off of our feet. And we have to get those back up again. He gets reoriented, but before we do that, we're going, we're going to see what the survey says. Thank you, Vanna. Or whoever, pebble person. Twenty um, percent of the people said which one? Psalm twenty-three, twenty-third Psalm. Psalm one, Psalm sixty-three, ninety-one, one hundred, one thirty-nine. Got about six point seven percent each. That's interesting. Uh, uh, my favorite. It's not even there. One twenty-one. So. Uh, there's a lot of psalms that speak to us, that speak to us, powerful books. Now, so we had orientation, then we had this, this, this disorientation time. Now, at the end of the chapter, though, he gets his feet back up under him, and what does he say? Psalm 20, 27 again. I'm still confident of this. I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart, take heart and wait for the Lord. And I, I would submit to you that he is at a better place and a stronger place when he gets to the end of this because, because he's gone through this time of the whirlwind, the shaking that we all do. So, I will see the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. And so we psalm, it's kind of like this with the arrows. We have psalms <clears throat> and we have the experience of how does it affect our heart. Well, it, it's, it's all about our relationship with God. <clears throat> and when we go through this, it brings us to a place of worship. Job got to the place where he acknowledged the sovereignty of God. In the Psalms, we get to a place where we can truly worship God. So, application. You might be in that middle part today where you feel disoriented today. 
you have a fear you're going you're gonna to lose your job or the economy's upside down or your health or you're afraid of growing old, you're afraid of some sin that still grips you, that your child will have an accident or your child will reject your faith. I don't know what it is today. But there's great bookends to this psalm. And it's a great one of comfort. The Lord is the light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? And it closes with wait for the Lord. Be strong and take heart and wait for the Lord. Again, I don't know where you are, but I want to take a time right now just for us to pray. And I want you to say in your heart today, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom, what will I fear? Let's pray together. Will you talk to the Lord right now? What is it? Say it. Say it to the Lord right now in your heart. What is it right now that's creating your, your uh, disorientation? What is it that's, that's making your world feel like you're in the midst of a, of a hurricane or a tornado? What's causing your emotional, spiritual vertigo? Will you say in your heart right now, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Will you say in your heart right now, the Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? Lord, we thank you for this psalm and we thank you for your hope. We thank you that in the, in, in the rawness of our lives, in the reality of our lives, you are there. And we can be strong and take heart and wait for you. In Jesus' name.